welcome back to another episode of the Rumcast. This is the podcast where we talk all things rum with the people who love and shape it. I'm Will Hookinga, and guess what? This time you are stuck with just me for the intro segment of this episode. So my co-host John Gulla is dealing with some household projects that threw some curveballs his way this weekend. Uh, all good, though. Nothing to worry about because he was there for the interview we are sharing with you today, which is with Kyle Reutner, the general manager of Kohana Distillers in Oahu, Hawaii. Uh, it, it's a distillery that you've heard us talk about on a few episodes recently, and we were finally able to get an interview set up with them. And in a way, it's it's a good follow-up to the previous interview we did in episode 35, which was all about Moba Rum in South Africa, because this is another distillery located far from the Caribbean that is growing sugarcane and making sugarcane juice rum rather than molasses-based rum. But that said, they are very different. Uh, which is part of what makes this interview so great. So Kohana has its own unique approach that is really driven by the sugarcane itself. So every rum they make comes from a single varietal of what they call heirloom Hawaiian sugarcane. They have over 30, I believe, of these sugarcane varietals, and they have all kind of descended from the original first few varietals of sugarcane that were brought to Hawaii by the first Polynesian people who arrived there hundreds and hundreds of years ago. I think over a thousand years ago, actually. Kyle goes into the details of that in the interview. But essentially, Kohana is just getting past the beginning of what is going to be a decades-long process of making rum exclusively from each sugarcane varietal to kind of discover what is different about each one and how those differences express themselves in the rum. So... They have a super interesting approach and philosophy to doing that, which we talk about uh, during the interview. And Kyle also takes us into some of the history of sugarcane in Hawaii. Uh, Its journey and role there was really different for a long time than it was in the Caribbean. So super fascinating stuff. I think you're going to learn a lot here. I know I did. Um, I don't want to spoil too much. Uh, Kyle really brought a lot to this interview. He has a background in both chemistry and hospitality. So he's just got a lot of expertise from, you know, a variety of, of perspectives that he brought to each topic we touched on. So I think you're really going to love this and I'm excited to get into it. here with Kyle Reutner, the general manager of Kohana Distillers out of Oahu, Hawaii, a place I'm always jealous that I am not in whenever I talk to you or anyone else, Kyle, that's out there. Um, So we just actually saw each other in person for the first time a few weeks ago at the California Rum Festival in San Francisco. And I talked a little bit about that experience on our last episode, also talked a little bit about getting to try the 100 proof 
Kohana uh, for the first time, which is really cool. But like, I know for me, just getting to be out there again and hang out around rum people in person for the first time in forever was awesome. And I, I just like, what has it been like for you getting to get out and be in that environment and kind of like be away from home and, and getting back into it again? So surreal. First of all, I, I think it's a obviously everyone's comfort levels are different. So for us, it was a unique time. It's also not getting back to it for us. That was our first ever event outside. Oh, wow. of so yeah. we've been so invested at home that we've never done anything like that. We're not, we, we really, I mean, I've been to a lot of things over the course of my career, but as far as Kohana goes, that's the first thing we've ever done outside of our state like that. That's so. pretty interesting. Yeah, because like I, I guess in some way, y'all have a lot of people coming to you being mm-hmm. a place that's a destination for a lot of people to travel to. So if they already know about rum, they hear what you guys are doing. It's unique. They want to come see it. Um, whereas maybe, you know, I think of a lot of other small rum distilleries throughout the United States that might not be in destination locations. And so getting to come to those festivals might be the first time they're getting to interact with you. That's, that's interesting to think about. I hadn't thought about that before. Hmm. Yeah. And we were, we were so blown away by the rum community on the whole, like we do, we get to welcome these people in, Mm -hmm. but being able to be in a room full of just like people who love the same thing we love was, was mind boggling. I mean, Justin and Tyler were looking around like, Everyone loves rum. This is pretty <laughs> awesome. We're not having to convince people that this stuff is actually cool, right? Yeah. Not explaining, you know, fresh sugar cane juice rum or the word agriculture to people is like, <laughs> yeah. whoa, we get to start in a different part of everything we do. This is right. cool. And speaking about you, you personally too, Kyle, how did you get your professional start in rum? I know you have like a background in, in hospitality and chemistry, I think. So yeah. how did that all end up coming together for you? Yeah. So I'm a recovering chemist, as I like to say. <laughs> uh, I, I'm a PhD dropout and, you know, one of those losers. Uh, and and Look, I, got I feel it. like recovering chemist makes it sound like you have some kind of like breaking bad background or something like that. I'm choosing it's, to take it that way. <laughs> it's incredibly intentional. Uh, I, like, I like that air of mystery. I won't tell people that it was me studying uh, a protein via solid state nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy. Uh, we'll just leave it at the breaking bad side of things. Uh, Fair it's, enough. It's more fun and no one will fall asleep. Uh, yeah. I got into I got into rum through hospitality, man. I got into it via running bars and restaurants and being, you know, kind of a, a cocktail geek. I rode an early wave in Hawaii for, you know, the craft cocktail movement and ended up just being in the room as conversations were had based on what we needed for craft cocktails, which was spirit. So I just got invited to the to the table, honestly. And I was on a short list of people. So when people decided to do new projects, I would I would get reached out to. And that's literally what it, the Kohana founders just reached out and said, can I, can I buy you lunch? I have this really fun idea. I think you might want to be a part of. It was a cold call. Wow. And was that really the start or the genesis of, of Kohana as well? Or so, did, yeah, I always, I always wonder if it's like, was, did it start with sugarcane or did it start with rum? Like it's kind of the chicken or the egg uh, with you guys, right. I feel like. Yeah, no, it, it started with the cane. So it started with ko, which is the Hawaiian word for sugarcane. And really, even more than that, it started with wanting to put 
our hands in the dirt. So the two gentlemen who founded the company wanted to get involved in agriculture. And so they were looking for what are the places that Hawaii could use an uptick, whether that's food sustainability or at the time fuel was big, right? Biofuel, mm. things like mm. that. And along the journey, it's like, let's ask a bunch of smart people questions and see, you know, what wants to be done. And once really Robert Dawson found a single scientist, Noah Lincoln, uh, who now is Dr. Lincoln, he was like, oh, sugarcane, this is it. Um, and then that's when the rum idea sort of was born. So it started as how do we do something from the earth in Hawaii? And I was contacted post that decision. So they had already decided it must be grown in Hawaii. We've got it. We're creating jobs. We are building this thing actually of here. And so it started out as a sugarcane project for sure. That's- it was Mamulele Cane Company. Wow. That's yeah. that's pretty fascinating because I, I think when people talk about sugarcane in Hawaii, they the the conversations go to the end of that just happened, you know, like the last mill closed there a few years ago. And and I want to kind of start start the conversation about what you guys do with sugarcane because I, like when we were at the California Rum Festival, you did a presentation and you got up at the beginning and you were you, you said it more eloquently, but it was like fair warning, this is like we're gonna talk a little bit about rum, but this is mostly just gonna be about sugarcane. Um and it ended up like I, I said last week I thought it was the most interesting seminar that anyone did uh, at the show. But I, I think one thing that's so fascinating about it is is sugarcane had kind of a different path to Hawaii and played different roles uh, than it did in the Caribbean for a big portion of Hawaiian history. And you pointed out like we kind of think of sugarcane as taking this steady westward journey, but it came mm-hmm. to Hawaii like a different path. So uh, for those who are unfamiliar with sugarcane's role in Hawaii, can you give like a quick history lesson? Because it it, tie, it ends up tying in in many ways into the whole Kohana philosophy. So, uh, and I think it's a fascinating place to start. Yeah, no, and I think that's uh, that's fantastic. And thanks for the compliment as well regarding the seminar. I'm always worried the two things I have to say before I start talking is if you are actively interested in these things, there are two books out there about Hawaii and Hawaii sugarcane that are must reads. One is called Ko, K-O with the line over the O that's known as the Kaha Ko. And that's written by the aforementioned Dr. Noah Lincoln, quite literally the book on the thing we find the most important. Mm-hmm. The second book is called From King Kane to the Last Sugar Mill, and it's written by Bob Osgood and friends. These are both people that have, and there's a, innumerable other humans that have brought the heat to this. So like mm-hmm. those, those are the places that most of this information comes from. And I like to be fully transparent. Yeah. No, and I, we, we love yeah. book recommendations yeah. on the Rumcast. And actually, I just ordered a copy of Dr. Lincoln's book the other day. <laughs> and I, I fully plan on reading it. But I also know it's the kind of book that like, if you order this and you don't end up reading it, it's it's got these amazing, beautiful photos of sugarcane and you can put it on your coffee table and it's, it's like written by a doctor. So it's going to make you look very smart to have it just <laughs> laying out there on the coffee table. So yeah, it's so cool. It, it's <laughs> <laughs> What's um, also nice about it is the title. I don't even have to write it down right now. I'm going to remember that. Co, Co- yeah, yeah. we got to remember. <laughs> exactly. And 
I think you can find it on our website, but you can also find it on Amazon and a couple other places. So, awesome. yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, if you, if you guys have it, I should have bought it from you guys. So everyone, if you're listening, we'll put the link up to Kohana's link so you can give, uh, you can support them instead of uh, Jeff Bezos. He's, he's, he's got <laughs> enough money. And you can order some rum at the same time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Keep the money in uh, the University of Hawaii Press and Dr. Lincoln's hands. That's yeah. The- that's the play. So to answer the question uh, <laughs> now, after we found our way back there, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, most people's worldview is okay. Sugarcane starts somewhere in Papua New Guinea, India, China, travels through that whole continent, gets to Egypt, the Middle East, ends up coming up to Europe, hops a ride on Columbus's second voyage, ends up in Hispaniola, populates most of the Caribbean the Southern United States, eventually California. And in the 1800s, plantations get to Hawaii. And that's true. There are arrows going that direction. The thing that doesn't get spoken about is that in about a a thousand years ago, about a thousand AD, the Hawaiians and before they're known as Hawaiians, the Polynesians are traveling the seas from Papua New Guinea to Fiji, Tahiti, and eventually getting to Hawaii and arguably even the west western part of the United States, they brought Co with them on those journeys. Yeah. So there was sugarcane populating the Hawaiian islands about 500 years before the Caribbean got its first stock of sugarcane. So it's yeah. a really unique wow. space. And in addition to that, it was brought for different reasons, right? By the time Columbus was throwing it on there, it was already a commodity, right? You were already trying to have table sugar and you're trading these spices. The Hawaiians didn't have that. They brought it for the day-to-day uses, you know, Mary Poppins, spoonful of sugar, right? So it's in all of these traditional medicines. It's in ancient sort of Hawaiian tattooing. And really probably most important, although like, the least sexy, it's the most calorically dense crop in the world when grown right. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So if you're traveling the seas, if you're literally crossing the Pacific, you have access to fresh water and sugar in amounts that are necessary for survival. So co was grown all over and it's, it's really brilliant to see how the Hawaiians use the plant and how different each cane is from the next. So really, really fantastic. And that's the, that's the short story. Mm -hmm. It really could be its own two hour seminar on, you know, warring rituals and birthing. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna bring out. You mentioned one thing in your um, in your presentation that was so fascinating to me about how they would plant uh, the the Hawaiians would plant it along like like I don't know if you called them like war trails or like when they were traveling and stuff. And and it had some function there. Could you explain that real quick? Yeah. So the the legend goes, and it's interesting because there is no written history in Hawaii before the Western contact occurs. Mm, oral tradition. Yeah. Yeah, so it's all oral tradition. So you, you've really got to dig deep. But the story goes that Kamehameha the Great, the gentleman who united the islands, or if you were one of the people who lost, maybe he was a warmonger. Um, he basically gathered each island under his rule. Right. He still studied at West Point to this day for how he positioned his troops and did different things. So a really mm-hmm. brilliant military mind. One of the things he did is he would plant co along different trails and it would work as both cover nobody's Mm -hmm. seeing you because it's growing dense and thick 
And it's also still that calorically dense crop. It's still sugar and water. So these old Hawaiian canes, we call them like chewing canes. Mm -hmm. They're softer than the rigid commodity canes that have been bred into what we now know as sugar cane, right? So really, really unique canes. And they would just cut low and they could chew away at this cane as they continued their march. And they would go and win again and again and again. Now, that's the story. And I think it's it's one of a million that tie plants to the Hawaiian people and how they go back and forth. And it's it's frankly a, a joy to be able to tell some of them. So I, I have a comment. So we, we were saying that the cane, we have this evidence of the cane being brought over in both directions, meaning from west to east and from east to west, I guess, as well, right? So can we then say, first of all, take that, flat earthers. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, And second of all, it really does provide such a rich history and understanding of how that kind of whole thing happened. And frankly, like you said, I really had no idea that there that tradition was there in, in Hawaii for so long before other places in the world that we come to customarily think about it. So that's that's pretty awesome. What I wanted to kind of follow up with to you, though, is and so we have this thousand year history. And I recall, and I think, Will, you just mentioned it. I recall hearing that the last, is it right that the last sugar mill in Maui closed in like 2016? That's, that is 100% correct. So yeah. you you and maybe some of the other rum producers on Hawaii are the only farms left now growing cane in Hawaii? Uh, no, uh, you can't say it quite that way because okay. there have been in the amount that we grow it, yes. Okay. But if you follow and there's a resurgence to old Hawaiian farming practices where we have a lot of unique crops, right? We have kalo, which is taro. We have ulu, which is breadfruit and all these things. And, and in these old systems of farming where like, you know, you're trying to preserve water instead of just like blasting your fields with tons of irrigation, they would plant cane to essentially work as like a a berm and hold these like waterways in these Mm -hmm. wetland lowy and things. So there's, there's been people farming these co forever. And frankly, there hopefully always will be, but yeah, we're, we're the, the largest, you know, contiguous farm, but there are, there are a number of people growing some amount of co. Right, like provincially or for their own yeah. uses, and uh, gotcha. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, and I want to get into the 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 cane varietals that y'all are using, and I think anyone the first time they pick up a bottle of Kohana rum, one of the first things they'll notice is that on the label there's a spot that tells you the varietal of cane that was used for that bottle. So any bottle you guys put out, it's always just one varietal. And and I, when it was harvested, yeah, and when well. it was harvested yeah. as well, uh, good point. And I, I think I think you mentioned. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think the number that you guys have are 32 different cane varietals. And so I'd love if you could kind of give us an overview of a. You touched on it briefly, but why these varietals? B. What makes these different from typical sugar cane that was grown commercially for you know actually making table sugar and how are you guys kind of organizing and managing all these different cane varietals right now like are you actively growing all 32 at the same time do you have a few of them um i I just packed like six questions into this one question so i'll 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 pause now and 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 let you uh let you jump in will i think they all connect uh (laughs) thank you yeah you you saw where i was you saw the method behind (laughs) behind the madness there for sure so we grow 34 genetically unique 
canes on our farm right now. That being said, of those 34, there are somewhere around 107 different names. And so you have to remember as over the millennia that Hawaiians are growing co they're in very different places and you're not traveling quickly from Lahaina to Oahu to Mm -hmm. Island of Hawaii. So these co are adopted by different people in different places. And even though they're genetically unique, they have are genetically the same. They have different names in different places. So we have to be really careful. There's there's an indigenous intelligence there. That is, there is no right name. Right. All of them are right. We do have some chosen ones to simplify life, but we, we grow 34 <laughs> of those heirloom canes. Um, within that, we have used 10 of them for individual production, single varietal rums. Okay. We will eventually get through all 34. We're nice. limited by land, time, and seed stock. You got to remember, we're, as a farm, Robert and Jason started you know, out in these fields with Noah and Bob and all these other folks and a bunch of grad students who go unnamed and they're collecting, you know, a hundred and, you know, 50 cuttings, you know, a quarter acre worth of co. And by the end of this year, we're going to be 300 acre fawn. Wow. So there's, there's, it takes time to grow out to that size. So yeah, eventually we'll get through all 34, but we've done 10 for production. And for us allowing the learning to occur is really really, really important in regards to how to grow these canes, how they ought to be used, how they should be nurtured, all of those different things. So we're always learning. And at the beginning of everything we do, it's about the farm. So it's all about this plant. And there's not a ton of information about how to how to do what we do. So there, there's a lot of kind of embracing, not knowing things, mm-hmm. which I think is difficult for the modern American distiller to understand. <laughs> I would imagine. Like, yeah. We don't know. And we're, we're really into learning it, not thinking we know it. And are you taking an approach that's kind of a hybrid of like the, the, the cultural knowledge that's already there and a scientific knowledge that meets that? Is that kind of how it's happening? Yeah, full, full on. So we... We don't grow cane like the plantations did, but we're not going to deny some of the science that exists to help that. So like right. Hawaii being so crazy out in the middle of the Pacific, right? We're very remote. Isolated. For those of the, you that don't know where we are, it's a long we flight. show up on general <laughs> maps most of the time. People just don't care to write our islands in. We had to, to compete on a commodity market in the 1800s. They really had to be intelligent and develop frankly, the best science there was. So the best sugar scientists in the world were in Hawaii for almost a hundred years. The Hawaii Sugar Planters Association was amazing. And that's no diss on any Caribbean sugar scientists. I'm sure they were phenomenal, but like drip irrigation and the way, the way crops were grown here advanced much quicker than it did in a lot of other places. So there's some really unique opportunity to embrace the science as it relates to caring for plants without sort of using the modern ideas of let's make all the cane the same. So getting, getting to that point is we embrace these co because they are meant to be in Hawaii. They, they ought to be grown here, just like the Ulu that's here or the Kalo, all the different varietals. We grow Hawaiian cane because 
it's what should be grown in Hawaii. Like we're, we're into that. And because it hadn't been bred crossbred and, you know, hybridized and, and all of that, we haven't bred out all of the delicious flavors, all of the nuances and the other things. Whereas if right. you're trying to make sugar, you have a singular goal in mind, right? Everything else is getting in your way of that goal. So if you have, you know, not a maximum bricks, which is the way you should me measure sugar. It's just a measure of sugar. If you're chasing only that and the efficiency in it, yeah, it gives you a North star and it's a really fantastic from a science background. It, it's the easiest thing to chase down, but you get rid of every other bit of nuance in between mm -hmm. those two points, which is where all the flavor lies for us. So I don't, you know, I, we grow these because we ought to, but we're also blessed to grow them because they're delicious. And yeah. when you went and got the initial stalks, I guess, that you used to start your farm, was that literally just going around to these, you know, various small growers around the island and saying, you know, what, what canes do you have? Can we have some? Like, what, what was that, <laughs> that collection process like? And, and, and how did that go? Fortunately, we were working in lockstep with Noah as he was doing his PhD research at Stanford. Okay. We had access to more hands and more knowledge than we ever should have because of the work that he was doing and the ability for Robert and Jason and the, you know, their family to basically go in and seek it out. Now that said, because there was so much science based around sugar in Hawaii, the scientists didn't want to get rid of all these great heirloom canes. They just didn't want to grow them for production. So they right. had these huge seed collections at the botanical gardens and these different, you know, state quarantines trying to protect these canes. Now, no, no bullshit, excuse my language. They, they weren't, they weren't necessarily well-maintained. So there was a lot of like hoping and praying that like what we found at plot 6B-72, whatever, mm -hmm. was going to actually be the cane that they said it was. Right. And then we'd give a, we'd beg for a cutting. You know, sugar cane grows from cuttings. It doesn't grow from seed, right? right. It technically can, but it doesn't really. So you're giving a donation, you're begging for these cuttings. And it's, it's really, on it. most people were stoked about it because we were going to go from one or two plants on a farm to, you know, I've got 50 and 60 acres of some of these co, which is crazy. So awesome. there, yeah. there was a lot of love and support behind it too, even from the outside community, just growing Hawaiian plants. Speaking of how much you have too, and that you have these different varieties, how do you prevent them from crossbreeding? Do you just like space them out and have plots that are separated by 10 feet plus, or is, is it as simple as that? Or is it more complicated? No, it's, it's actually, you don't even need to worry about that because they're not going to seed. The uh, only thing you have to worry about is being consistent with your cuttings and watching for mutations. Hmm. Now, I, I, and, and at the risk of everybody being like, Kyle only talks about plants. <laughs> um, you've got to remember these 107 different named 34 different types. Maybe there's 50 different types. Who knows? Like the science is still being proven, right? We're excited to find new stuff all the time. There may have only been one, two, three, seven, what we would call noble canes that actually got here. And then they changed over that millennia. They're right. still mutating to this day, right? So you've got this 
this really interesting idea as to what it is to be a Hawaiian cane. Is it the first couple that actually got here with the Hawaiians or over the millennia as they changed and became more right. diverse? Are they more Hawaiian or less Hawaiian? Like, what is that? So there's, right. there's a ton ethnobotanically yeah. to look into, um, which is, yeah, it, it's, it's incredible and, and fantastic. So yeah, we, we're always learning. There isn't an issue necessarily with crossbreeding, but yeah, we watch for mutations. Um, Noah has, has moved on to really focusing on Ulu a lot now. So he doesn't march our fields as much as he used to. But he used to that's really, breadfruit, really, correct? Yeah, Ulu's okay. breadfruit, which is going to save the world. Um, Ooh. Yeah. That sounds, Ooh. that sounds like its own, its own special podcast. Um, <laughs> so I, I want to keep talking about that, but also we mentioned everything Kohana does has been single varietal. Some people may be wondering like, okay, why, like why, yeah. why does, why do you want to do all these different bottlings of, of rum that come from just one varietal? Because not every producer that makes rum from fresh sugarcane juice only uses one varietal. Um, there, there are some distilleries out there that have done like some special one-off releases and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And there are some that only use one varietal, but it's not something that everybody does. So why are you guys doing that? And why are you kind of going through it so meticulously with 30 some odd different varieties? It's really simple. We don't know what these canes will be like as rums mm-hmm. and any assumption is just that it's an assumption. So if you don't go through and try them, then you don't have any idea. So why wouldn't you first, we're not 250 years into this, excuse me, I'm gonna go back. We're not, you know, I don't have a ton of history with people growing these plants and distilling them and knowing it. what they do in Martinique with 13 different cane varietals that they can use. And some use this and some use that mm-hmm. and they have the history. I find that really beautiful for me to have the hubris or, you know, the arrogance to think that we would have just picked the right cane flavor-wise or whatever that would define Hawaiian rum forever. That just doesn't make any sense to me. So as a company, we look at it as an opportunity and a privilege to be able to grow them, see what they taste like. And eventually we're going to circle in on what we want to do. Yeah. Maybe for my whole life, Kohana will do single varietal and only single varietal. Maybe in 15 years when all 34 plants have been exhausted and we understand a lot more, we'll begin a blending of this for that and the other and, and whatnot. Or maybe it's for my kids or maybe yeah. it's for, you know, whomever. But it's really, it's about the journey and getting the ego out of the way a little bit as far as like, oh, it's just a plant. We're trying to show as much respect to that and get to the right answer. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to make the assumption because in a hundred years, I don't want to be the guy written about having made a terrible assumption. I'd rather <laughs> learn. I'm glad you mentioned the blending thing because I did have that as a question that how hard is it not to blend yet and just to try to keep those that way. But I will also say it's, I think it's fantastic because you, you mentioning the, the journey, but what's really awesome is you're giving us all the chance to join you on that journey. Yeah. By exploring these these rums, which is it's fantastic, and I have to say, I'm clearing out a full shelf on my uh, my rum, so I can have all 32 <laughs> and I'll have a full collection someday when we're old and gray. Will and Kyle, we'll we'll, we'll have them all. Got to catch them all. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, I'm imagining. Um, do you guys have like a leaderboard of like which ones taste the best, and you're just like a, a current ongoing power rankings of the different sugar canes? 
So, so we look at it like parents look at their kids. There are no best <laughs> ones. And yes, I have a favorite. Uh, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> but yeah, there, there is definitely, I think there, there are a few of us who have, there, there's really three that are kind of in the running for like who, whoever's favorites. Okay. Um, and so there, there is some of that, but because we haven't tried some of them, like we're, we're about to plant our first ever, I think it's a, it's three quarters of an acre of a, of a co known as Uahia Pele, which is the smoke of Pele. And we've never grown it in mass. We've never made a rum from it. And like, it's probably the most gorgeous cane in our whole collection. It looks like the smoke of Pele. So it's this purple cane with like white waxy, like it's, it's oh, incredible, no. absolutely, absolutely incredible. And so I could say this year, like, Oh, I love X cane. And so, uh, you know, I'll go on the record. Like, you know, there, there is a cane that I love. I'm not going to say it cause I don't want it to sell out. Uh, and nobody <laughs> able to buy it. but you know, there's, there's the opportunity to find a new favorite later. And so I, I hesitate to say, Oh, it's this or that, but yeah, you got, everybody has their own favorite, which is also cool. Do you have just to follow on that? So how many of the new cane are you working on now to, to release in the near future? So we talked yes. about the, the full feature being, you know, all 32 at some point, but what's coming up next? Cause I'm curious for that too. Yeah. So just released. And I think something we did to try to kind of bring in some of our mainland folks into our Ohana, we released two different rums just to our mainland folks. We've never sold it oh, in wow. Hawaii. So there's a rum called Kalaoa and another called Hina Hina. Both are available in Florida and California Ooh. right now. Florida and, sounds good. <laughs> yeah. So there's uh, there's some really interesting flavors there. And I think they do a, a really good introductory story about who we are, just kind of seeing those two. And we thought it would be cool to launch them outside of Hawaii and see how people felt about them. Uh, yeah. I'm catching a tiny bit of flack about it here. but <laughs> <laughs> So Kyle, I know that the majority of what you're doing is unaged rums, right? With, with trying to, the idea, the premise being you want to get the cane and, and experience the cane there. I know you also do have in the line the, the coho and there's another uh, few that are available that are aged as well. Yeah. But one thing I wanted to ask you about is that I, I understand as part of your process, you rest everything including those the the unaged white rums you you or whatever we want to call those you rest everything in in stainless steel for 90 days right yep. can you explain what that step is and and what it imparts to the finished product yeah so when you when you're distilling you're you're going to collect this this aggregate mix of ethyl alcohol and everything else that traveled through at this the same time right so you've got all this really interesting flavor and I talk all the time about like during what's known as the hearts for distillers, which is what ends up becoming mm -hmm. your final product. We distill on for everybody keeping track at home. We have a, we have a hybrid pot still. We do batch distillation. So there's a start and a finish and a lot of decisions made heads, hearts and tails every day. And something that I think gets lost in distilling a lot is you say, okay, you cut off the heads for, X reason too much of these flavors. It's, it's off putting yeah. cut off the tails because of, you know, a change in mouthfeel and also off putting flavors. And you keep the hearts. The assumption as that statement is made is that the hearts taste the same, that right. what comes off in fractional distillation is the, the same thing. Boom, 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 boom. 
during that whole portion as that spirit is pouring out of your apparatus. Well, that's untrue, right? right. You, at different temperatures, you have different molecules tra- hopping on the back of those ethanol molecules and getting to sure. the final product. So mm-hmm. for us, we start with our, the very first things that come off of our still that become part of our rum are these really high notes. They're all tropical. So it's grass, it's banana blossom, it's lychee blossom. So it's grass and flowers and, and high notes followed by tropical fruits and then into like heavy fruits. And that's where like anytime you get black olive from our stuff, which is pretty infrequent, but any of that, like that middle, like heavy tree fruit stuff comes through. Then at the end, you get your herbs and your candies. So you're like, we, we get something in our white canes that tends to be like the aftertaste of eating red hots. That's like, it's not quite cinnamon, but it's like mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. in that range, or you get this like really cool anisette or day old mint. When you say, when you say white canes, are you referring to the actual color of the cane itself? Yeah. So when you think about them, you can, you can, for lack of nuance, you can think of them almost like a vintner looks at their grapes with having, you know, green grapes or, mm-hmm. or red grapes, mm-hmm. grapes. So you can look at our co like the lighter canes tend to have X, Y, and Z and the darker canes tend to be this. So the lighter canes tend to be brighter and more tropical. The darker canes tend to be earthier and more salinic just in general. Yeah. Um, there are things that don't play quite as nice as that, which is why the journey is so cool. Yeah. But within that, we have that whole aggregate now, right. To answer the, the very long question about why we take a 90 day resting period, the proof in the pudding is in the eating, right. The, the proof in the rum is in the drinking it tastes better after 90 days. It's a glorified oxidation. Think of it like a stew or, and I say oxidation, not oxygenation. We're not introducing oxygen for those of you who are gotcha. out there. There is oxygen around, but that's not the process that's occurring. Uh, sorry, I have to digress a little bit. Um, <laughs> Clarify for all the scientists out there. No, it, uh, um, so, <laughs> sorry. That 90 days resting period, which is totally us just paying attention to what great distillers did and then understanding the science afterwards, you rest it for 90 days. It's a more congruent spirit. It doesn't taste just disjointed. If you add water right away, you have these soft hydrogen bonds that keep things from interacting and becoming what they could be. And you have a bunch of soloists. So you get lychee, you get anisette and you get, you know, some selenic black olive or whatever. Let's just take three notes Mm -hmm. and they're all alone. And the spirit just doesn't sing as opposed to where you get this symphonic thing where they're all playing together after 90 days, then you slow add water and let that do the, do the talking for you. Mm -hmm. So your stainless steel is your conductor. Yeah. Getting the band together there. Gotcha. I I would, I would say Tyler's the conductor and you know, (laughs) that's fair. Tyler deserves that. Yeah. Agreed. So does the resting process in the 90 days of stainless steel also happen for your barrel-aged rums, or does the distillate go right into the barrel? Right into the barrel for that. So we actually bring it down to the proof we like, which is around 118, and then we let it rest. Because the same oxidative step that's occurring in that stainless steel barrel Mm -hmm. is going to happen inside of this breathable wooden barrel. So like, there's no reason to do them stepwise because the same process can happen. Sort of the Venn diagram of like, extractive, subtractive, and like oxidative aging, if you were to let it go, you might be playing catch up a little bit. So it's easier to just get it in the barrel, 
and let it start doing its thing. That said, we have a lot of variables just making white rum. Yeah. yeah. Imagine the introduction of wood. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Before we get, I want to talk about your aging program. Um, before we get into that, I think a natural question people have, if they're you know looking at your different bottles and comparing them, they see the different varietals. They're wondering, when you make rum from this varietal, do you do anything differently during the process for this other one? Like, does this one need a longer fermentation time or more uh, more plates in the column or different things like that? So what is your approach from varietal to varietal? Our approach is incredibly uh hands off in in (laughs) one in one way and very controlling in another so to the chagrin of many many uh, rum aficionados we do closed fermentation Mm -hmm. we do inoculated yeast we are letting the variable be co yeah so the idea is those are those are awesome i love it when people talk to us and they're like oh i can't wait until we get a an open top, like a wild ferment mm-hmm. from Moana. Oh, I can't wait until, you know, you guys do, you know, this thing, which is, you know, a, a double, a double pot run instead of doing a, a single through the hybrid column or this, or that the amount of variables that are being added doesn't make sense to what our initial goal is, which is understanding these canes outright. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to introduce those things. I think those are all amazing projects. And if I had an infinite amount of energy and money, capital, we would be able to start experimenting with some of that as well at the same time. But for right now, it stays really straight in line. The word Kohana, the work of the sugar cane, it's exactly that. Mm-hmm. It is, we, we have tried to minimize the other variables. So when we talk about it's the same still, we ferment to dry every time. So there's not, we don't have like a stopwatch going. We have this perfect 36 hour fermentation time. No, it's always to dry. We let the whole cane sort of be expressed. We give a little bit of time for like a a touch more time than just going to dry it as some time for bacterial load stuff, but that's outside of it. Single variable is the goal. It's not as simple as that because it, it doesn't work because time continues marching on, which is why the other thing that's on every bottle is the unstoppable variable of time. When was it harvested? Harvested, yeah. So like this is living stuff, right? You can't like you can't eliminate everything. So we try to embrace some of that. Right. It's but, also not all grown in exactly the same plot of land as well. Right. It's different locations, right? Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about terroir. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> let's do it. Uh, do it. And so we have we have four different farms, and, and we'll talk about why first. We grow heirloom Hawaiian cane, and if something happened to one of those farms, that would be a travesty. Yep. Having four different places where there are lots of canes, including the whole collection growing, is really healthy biologically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for us as a company. So it's I double. Mean, that, that can happen too. Like I, I've talked to Pepe Alvarez from San Juan Artisan Distillers in Puerto Rico, and he's growing fresh sugar cane. His it, basically entire first crop was entirely wiped out pretty much by Hurricane Maria. And yeah, it, yeah. Set them, it set them back years. Um, and, you know, they had to put so much hard work into getting it back. So, yeah, it's having multiple locations makes total sense for many reasons, but I would imagine, you know, that's one of them as well. 
Yeah. No, it, it fully is. And you have to acknowledge that. And if you have the privilege to be able to have multiple farms, then you can kind of protect yourself. That, that being said, if, it, if the same type of hurricane came through Hawaii, not, none of our farms would be hidden. Yeah. Like we're, we're not a huge place like right. we're on the island of Oahu, right? So, and my heart goes out to him. I mean, that, that's just got to be brutal. I know how hard it is to grow cane. Yeah. I've had to- I, yeah. I mean, that was, that was tough for them, but it's, it's really cool to see now, like where they are now. Um, yeah. because like they've, they've got the fields going, they've, they've just released, you know, their fresh cane juice rum. And I like the, I think a lot of people in the rum world are excited about that. So I'm, I'm really happy that they are where they are now. Heck yeah. Show that resilience. I, yeah. I now that I know that story, I have to seek out some things because that that's fantastic. I, Absolutely. I um, for us, we have, like I said, four different farms. One is less than a mile away from the North shore of Oahu and Haleiwa. Another farm is on sort of like the Northwest side in Waialua. Another is in Kunia and then in Southern Kunia. Kunia is central Oahu. A little cooler, a little tiny bit higher. By tiny bit, I mean like 800 okay. uh, feet elevation, not like 8,000. So a little cooler, a little different soil type, but only only a touch. The real big change for us is temperature, um, mostly at night actually, and then mm. access to the salt from the ocean. Right. So the North Shore of Oahu is famous for its surf. If you're on our either of our North Shore farms working in the winter, you will leave with salt from the saltwater spray. Oh, wow. And it's not something you feel throughout the day or anything like that. But at the end, you're like, there's no way all of this is salt is coming from, from me. Yeah. So, so it's all over all of those plants up there. All the wow. coal is yeah. covered. Not, not to mention, it's just, I mean, it's loud and macking. It's a very, it's a very cool place to be. Someday we'll be able to show people it and take people around once, yeah. once Hawaii is opening. I'm, I'm planning my visit already. Um, I do. I, so I want to talk about the aging because you, you know, you've been talking about emphasizing the plant so much and really showcasing that. And obviously that shows in the unaged rum as like anyone who really loves fresh cane juice rums. I think that's one of the things that we love about them is how expressive they are of the sugar cane. When you age that, different things can happen. Like sometimes you end up having uh, aged rums from fresh sugar cane juice where the wood kind of like takes over and you lose that. So I know it's this like dance to figure out how do we age this in a way that brings out something from the plant without, you know, covering it up in just a bunch of oak and wood, which can also be tasty. And again, we're, we're talking all about introducing variables, like with barrels, so many variables, like type of <laughs> cask, char level, was it yeah. used or not? So mm-hmm. take me inside. How have you all approached that process? Uh, like how, how much different stuff have you tried? Do you feel like you've arrived at like, okay, we kind of know what our cooperage is and what works best for our rum? Or do you still feel like, man, we're really still at the beginning of figuring this stuff out? Well, I, I think when you look at the whole picture of how barrel programs work and, and the longevity that I would like for our company to have, our distillery and farm to have, we are definitely at the beginning. That said, it's not that it's not like we don't know anything and haven't learned any lessons. We have, we've gone from, you know, 20 barrels to a hundred. Now we have a barrel house that'll fit about a thousand barrels in it. Yeah. We are still doing the dance, trying to not cover the beautiful work of the distillate and mm-hmm. the plant itself 
while embracing certain things that aging gives. When we started, we had a really heavy hand. And I think like a lot of American distillers, it's really easy to get caught behind like, let's get a ton of flavor from this barrel. Let's make this thing sing. Like let's, let's get, let's really overdo it. And in a lot of ways, some of our earlier rums just, they had, they covered up the thing we do best. Mm. And so we're, we're working our way now into, all right, how do we barrel age without losing what, what our soul is? Um, and this is me just being really, really honest. I hope people that are out there understand. I think our aged rum is still amongst the best that you can buy, especially in the U.S. I'm, I'm drinking some right now. Yeah, so it, yeah. it's, it, it is really delicious. But the, the honest truth is we're, we are still on that journey with it. And it's a more complex one because instead of waiting three months, you're waiting two and four years. Yeah. And you're yeah. trying to understand the wave of this barrel over that time. Nobody has aged barrels in Hawaii ever. It's not a thing. There's mm. not another place you can go for any history with this. We didn't, nobody knew what the angel share would be. We have different humidity levels and temperature than anywhere else. So we're, we're learning this. So knowing what happens and knowing what goes on now that we've been doing it for, you know, seven years, throwing things in barrels, we're, we're beginning to scratch the surface of understanding what it is we do without losing what it is. It, on that note, you brought up Angel Share. Do you know, like, is it is it roughly comparable to some places in the Caribbean? Uh, you know, I think people hear Hawaii, they think of what it looks like, you know, the island, and they instantly imagine it being almost the same as the Caribbean. But I imagine there could also be some differences there. For sure. So, so ours is nine percent, and I can really only be concerned with our our angel share, but that's crazy high. That's high. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. I was gonna say. Talk to like folks, and and we don't do any cheating. Like we don't spray down our barrels. We don't like ultra. We don't do any temperature controlling. It's all just embracing Hawaii and dealing with the repercussions of that. Right. Mm-hmm. Like you've just gotta be okay that that's what happens. So yeah, we we pay attention, but we can look at best practices in other places and and see how folks did it in Barbados or Martinique or Jamaica and these places where the world's best rums have traditionally been made mm-hmm. and use that collected intelligence and, and embrace the brilliant people that did that. But we have to do it ourselves in a slightly different and, you know, understand that Hawaii has other issues that we yeah. have to look at. Yeah. yeah. So anyone who's listened to our uh, show here for a while knows that I'm a sucker for presentation. <laughs> this, this man loves a good bottle. <laughs> Will doesn't know good taste with bottle design, so <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm the one who looks at that. And and as a big fan, really, of of Kohana's bottle design and really the overall aesthetic of it, can you tell us a little bit more about how you all came up with it, decided on that? Was there an underlying philosophy or goal behind the style? And if you've never seen it before, by the way, if you're listening, I always have to remind myself that like oh, yeah. people can't see everything. We can't see it. Um, yeah. Like it's it's basically like a beautiful glass cube sort of is what it looks like but uh but yeah please please continue the philosophy was we wanted people to be as proud to have it on their back bar as in their glass so we wanted folks to be able to go i'm happy to show off that bottle the other side of the philosophy behind it was 
how do we make something in Hawaii that is not leaning into the negative images mm-hmm. and the typical cliches right. that come with it? Hawaii is incredibly diverse and elegant and sexy and and sometimes it can be really linear and rigid and and there, there's so many different ways to look at this place instead of and you'll have to excuse me if people are into this but like it's not hula skirts right, and, right. and mm-hmm. uh all surfer imagery and that stuff that does exist here and it's freaking awesome like if you can go and watch the merry monarch festival and watch halal's perform hula you'll understand why hula is so beautiful but putting it on a bottle just didn't make sense. We wanted something that was going to showcase what Hawaii was, and that's kind of inside the bottle, and what Hawaii is, which is the elegance and the packaging yep. and the honesty and simplicity of it. So, yeah, it's, it's, we embraced it really. I, look, this was hard. It was hard to come up with all of this. And it was, there were a lot of eyes and hands and lost nights of sleep in how we were going to present this. And then you say, like, you're going to do a square bottle. If anybody does any glass blowing out there, understands <laughs> what what you're asking for when you say, let's make 44,000 cubed bottles of different, like, they're, they're like, they're thick too. They are like, thick. they're yeah. like, I feel like I could drop it on the floor and it would just dent the floor instead of, you know, breaking <laughs> the bottle. Yeah. It's uh. It, when our bar friends put them in like the well at their bars and things like that, because we're super fortunate that our rum ends up in a lot of daiquiris and Mai Tais and other great cocktails. Our bottle has been known to kill the bottles around it. Uh, as <laughs> just it takes them out. Yeah. As it's being put back into the well, it's just like, oh, like Kohana just crushed that poor bottle of uh, dry curacao. Or it just, you know. It I just feel like with your, back, with your background in hospitality, this was like a diabolical plot to just eliminate as many other bottles on the back bar as you could. I catch so much flack about how heavy <laughs> our bottles are and the design for bartenders and and someday we will have like a bar designed, you know, bottle release that okay. like will be acquiescing to my my bar homies all over the world. But for now, this is it, man. We we've, we've got one face. By the way, I have to take this moment to humble myself because the first time I got one of these bottles, um I think I was talking to John and I was like, "Man, these things are beautiful, but like it was really hard for me to this. open it." Yeah. Um uh, but I found out this was actually, it's not a bottle problem. It's a me problem. Because yep, user error. <laughs> there is a way. Yeah, it was user error. Because there's a way to open it that's actually extremely easy. And it wasn't until the California Rum Festival. I think it was uh, John Atkins who pointed it out to me. He was like, dude, all you have to do is just, you kind of like, uh, it's almost like you, pr- you like slightly pry it a little bit. I don't know how to explain like with words how to do it, but you just, just kind of, it, it comes right out. Side. Yep, exactly. Yeah. It's the worst when you try to tug on it though. Like these are, I, they're called Vino seals and it's really elegant, but mm-hmm. you're not, you're not the only one will like we, okay. I need to invest in like a, a campaign where like yeah. there's really cool, awesome, beautiful humans, like showing right. everyone like, when you finally get your hands on a bottle of Kohana, you just need to give it a little push. 
Exactly. Just right, exactly right, right. And it I has a little sound. Yeah. Well, the, the PSA, the PSA campaign can start right now. Um, so when you pick up a bottle, just just give the lid a little push. And a thumb it, tap. It, yeah, exactly. I've, um, I've had to show up to a bar because I had a bar manager freaking out about how hard they were to open up. This is like the very first year we distributed to anybody that wasn't like like family. Uh-huh. And I, I got this phone call and the guy's like, seriously, come pick these up. Something's wrong with Paul. Oh, <laughs> uh, awesome. This is, this is going to be. Okay. And then you had to get on a video call and show him, right? <laughs> no, I went to the bar. This is still... Oh, wow. Like, oh, this yeah. This pre-pandemic. I, I, oh, okay, okay. I drove over there and, like, you know, bought a drink afterwards. And <laughs> I, I pulled him aside to show him because I felt like I was going to embarrass him in front of the staff. And he's like, I don't know how I'm going to go back there and show them this now. And I'm like, well, none of them knew either, man. So, like, <laughs> you're like, let's just share how it's done. Uh, that was terrible. Um, awesome. one other thing with the bottle I want to talk about real quick because people all like usually this is a question people have is just the agricole side of things. Yeah. So you guys have Hawaiian agricole on the bottle. I know there's kind of like an ongoing discussion in the you know across the global rum community about what should be what should have agricole on the label, what shouldn't. Um, yeah. I, there's been, you know, some pushback from some of the uh, French Island producers, you know, in Martinique and places like that on places outside of that area using the term. So like, like, what is your kind of philosophy on that? And just, I'd love for people who are wondering about it to know, you know, what your perspective is on that. Yeah. I I'll, I'll start by saying we were unaware of how, protective people were going to be over that particular word. Mm. Um, when we looked at the problem, we saw it like most of the French based protected things. It's space based, not uh, product based, not an adjective. So like when we think about it, we're like, Oh, okay. Like Martinique hugely protected. It makes a lot of sense. Like here's how they have to do it. What about these other islands and the other French islands and, you know, we, we really saw it as like, oh, like St. George did the California agricole. That's a really interesting way. How do we show love to that style mm-hmm. without whatever? So it's like, oh, Hawaiian agricole makes a ton of sense to us. This is pretty early on. I mean, this is, I think we, we marked it in maybe 2010. Okay. Yeah. yeah so quite a while like ago. Mm-hmm. And we're like, we're, we're embracing it pretty hard. And there's been, there's been a little pushback here and there, but the word agricole to to us and to me is, is an adjective that expresses that it's fresh sugar cane juice. And I, I can respect somebody that thinks that agricole means all of the other things that come with being AOC Martinique, mm-hmm. but I don't think it actually applies to the word agricole. And I can see somebody being frustrated with us for sure about it. It's just, I'm not going to subscribe to that. And, and really if you want to look one island chain over where they introduced their language and a lot of other things to the island of Tahiti, and if you make fresh sugarcane juice rum there uh, in this colonized place and you call it agricole, you're against the AOC and you can't go into EU. So you're allowed to throw your language on another group and do all of these other things, but they can't call theirs agricole. I think there's an overstep. And I think that protecting places is brilliant. I think that protecting that word might be an overstep Mm. Uh, and I'll, and I'll let everybody sort of deal with the fallout as it comes along, but it's for us, we would like 
for them to see it as a net positive. I know people in Hawaii know more about agriculture because we've introduced that. Mm. Uh, and I can understand the feelings in France or Martinique about the other side. But for us, nah, I mean, this is, it's Hawaiian agriculture. We don't separate them. We don't use an H on the rum. We don't do the other right. things. But, you know, this, there's, a, there's a fight to be had. And people are really passionate on both sides. We're interested in making really dope rum. We're not trying to be disrespectful. And we have Hawaiian agriculture on our bottle. It's who we are. Well, yeah, I, you know, I think again, it's, it's something that like people have, um, it's, it's really personal to lots of people because, you know, all these brands put in so much work to all of this and, um, you know, are trying to do their thing. So I, I think it's just good for people to share, you know, what their perspective is so people can hear it, you know, straight from the producer right? and, uh, and yeah, just, just be able to get the, the full picture of everything. Uh, it really, it really was birthed out of like, thinking we were paying homage and like really going into that. We didn't realize that it was going to be <laughs> kind of what it has been. Sure. Well, going back to like things in Hawaii, uh, yeah. one of the, one of my, like the coolest moments to me from California Rum Festival was after your seminar, sitting down with you and um, a guy named Art who works for Kuleana Rum Works, which is another rum distillery in Hawaii that is uh, making some rum from fresh sugarcane juice. They have a whole different approach and everything from you guys. And, you know, we won't get into that on this show. This is the, the Kohana interview. But one of the things that I thought was really cool was, you know, here are two guys who are in some ways competing with each other, but you both had, there, there was this mutual kind of respect and energy and feeling that you guys were kind of doing something together in a way. And I think it's fascinating to just think about like, what to you like are there benefits that come with having other producers advocating for locally produced rum growing sugarcane and stuff like that do you foresee ways of working together how, how how do you view all that yeah so i think there's it's really easy to be small minded about business and about whatever it is that you're protecting your own thing and therefore no one else can be involved in it I, I don't, I don't agree with it. We don't, we're not into that type of thinking. So for us, whether it be Koloa, Kuleana, Friends on Maui, new upstart distilleries, whatever it is, we just want people producing great things in the same space and proximity. And I'd argue that that extends pretty much the world over. And if I'm doing just my little bubble, it, that's what we want for the rum community in general. I don't want to fight with people about this amount of the pie. I want the pie to be larger. I don't want yeah. to, to find myself in that space. And, I, and I, I think for the most part, when people sit down and think about it, that's how they do. But it's really easy to find yourself protecting what is yours, right? Like I did this first, it must be mine. And so as it relates to, you know, art or the team at Kuleana, they are doing great things. Mm -hmm. We are trying also to do great things. Like let's let's just continue to do what we do. They're different things. Yeah. And that's good. We've already spoken about all the stuff I can't do because <laughs> we as a company are trying to go in, in a certain direction. So why can't there be another rum company that does just picks one cane? Or maybe they start importing molasses and just picks the wild mm -hmm. yeast of Hawaii to be like 
the most important part of their product. All of that is pretty cool. So why would I poo-poo that and stand in the way? Like yeah. it, the idea that there's only going to be one Hawaiian rum on a shelf seems crazy to me. Like if I talk to my friends in Louisville, they don't not carry Maker's Mark because they carry Buffalo Trace. Mm -hmm. If you talk right. to your friends in Martinique, the bars aren't not carrying Nissan because they carry La Favorite or Gian exactly. or yep. Like, Give me a break. So no, I, I love, I love art. I mean, first of all, he's a, a friend friend. So, so there's that, but then like we've traded stories on harvesters and mills and visited each other's farms and talked different things. Like we, we tasted their, their ferment uh, maybe two, two and a half months ago, we went over and I got to jump, jump into the distillery and taste one of their ferments. It's this really clean, beautiful ferment that mm -hmm. was going on. And we're, we're like, heck yeah, man. Like you guys just keep doing this. And like, then they presented a blend that they had some cool Trinidadian rum. And this is just one, one example. Like we, we talk about it and like, you know, there's Kaloa over on Kauai. They helped to start the craft movement here. People should get the flowers that they deserve. Like whether it's the scientists or the businessmen or the Hawaiians as they got here, let's not forget about the people whose land we're all sitting on over here. Mm -hmm. But there's there's a way to share all of this without, you know, taking some sort of like faux ownership and, and fighting over something silly. So no, I mean, look, us as a company, Kohana, we just want awesome shit happening. Let's yeah. be honest. That's what we want. <laughs> like we, we're going to be a part of that. It's what we're going to do. And if other people are into it, God bless them. Let's go. That's Let's right. So, yeah, we, do, we just want awesome shit happening from you guys as well. So <laughs> I think we're all on the same page. It's there. a motto that we can all share. <laughs> so speaking of that, Kyle, what's next for Kohana? You mentioned getting into Florida and some other places, which I'm really excited about being in Miami. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. But I know that there's probably more. You, you mentioned some of the other cane varieties that is going to uh, be now coming out. Are you looking at the next step already? And what is that? For you all, what's out on the horizon? The next step for us is moving from hand harvesting to a machine harvester, which which may sound really unsexy to a lot of folks. So we we swing machetes right now. Uh, mm -hmm. It's all cane knife harvested, um, which is a really romantic story for somebody to write. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> we're interested in our farmers retiring with us and living healthy, happy lives. So the goal is to find ways for them to do more and more advanced harvesting techniques that allow for longevity. So we're moving in that direction on our farm, as well as expanding the farmland and therefore the amount of delicious rum that people are able to have access to, whether it's in Florida, California, New York, or anywhere in the world. So it, it truly is bookended, right? We have the farm and then we have the, the outreach on the other side. Now there are some really cool, releases that are coming up like you know the we talked about the 100 proof uh which i i sort of swore years ago we'd never do that we'd always be an 80 proof rum brand because you why, know why would you swear that well so I, i'm a little i think sharing rum with the global community it's very important to embrace lower proof things like if you drink tequila in mexico sure. it's at 70 right mm -hmm. so it's 35 percent Right. Because, and, and people don't think about how these are this is all consumed. We're very close to Japan. So you have a shochu community and you've, right, you've got right, people right. that 
drinking slightly differently. So we thought, well, if we can access these great flavors at a lower proof, like we can share them that way. And it's really fun. Mm-hmm. Some, some folks understand it. They think it's dope. Other people are like, well, why aren't you releasing, you know, stuff that's up there with like rum bar and Ray and nephew and that, mm-hmm. which our stuff is delicious at those higher proofs. Now, now you're getting to try the hundred proof, you know, Manu Lele coming soon. And it's, it is, it's actively awesome. I was wrong to think that we would not be doing that. It's something that's going to be part of our core line now that we're going to be releasing single varietal, hundred proof, or maybe once a quarter, some new cane varietal until we get through kind of the next three years worth of those. Yeah. So that that's coming up. We also have, we have to harvest our full collection once a year. So we have a full Hawaiian collection release that'll be coming out soon. Um, is that is called cool. the the co collection? I mean, we the, have to. It's got to be alliterate the alliteration. Yeah, why it's not too just, good to pass. Why on. not just collection? Collection. So it's just of collection course. with a K. So we're. That's, <laughs> Kyle's like, yeah, <laughs> we're going to do that. Right don't do past that. By the way. <laughs> that's not going to happen, guys. Thanks. Uh, it's, <laughs> I, I did appreciate this collaboration though. Today. Oh, <laughs> oh, hey, there we go. Hey, yo. No, but it's a. It's a. There's there's a number of other things that are coming down the pipeline. But the, the truth is maybe, and maybe it's a little unsexy to, to talk on the podcast that it's about improving harvesting and growing the production side of things to be smoother and, and clip away at a different pace and just really hitting that. It's something we've never had the opportunity to do multi-years worth of full production, full bore. Tyler Johnson, our distiller and his team, going the whole farm humming all year long. So this will be a, a unique opportunity for us to really find the, the sexiness in the unsexy, which mm. is, you know, producing and like the day-to-day joyful work that we get to do. Mm. So that that's what it's about. And honestly filling a boatload of barrels so we can better understand that and sharing it with a few other States here and there, but we'll all still right. be relatively awesome. limited. I mean, Florida and California can basically buy everything we do. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, and speaking of of collections, by the way, I don't I don't know if you've gotten the sales pitch yet, but if you haven't, it's probably coming at some point. Um, we talked to Knud Strand, who works with Mobo Ram out of South Africa, and he told us about this little project he's working on, where he wants to get as many fresh cane juice rum producers from all over the world to contribute to this little collection he's doing, and this goes back into something else that you said you guys wouldn't do, which was like 100% wild fermentation, unaged rum. He's trying to get as many samples of that from different places around the world. And when he was on the podcast, he told us about it and he brought up Hawaii. And I knew there was only, you know, a handful of people that could do that Mm -hmm. there for him. So I don't know if he's talked to you guys yet or not. Obviously, that's different from what you guys are doing. But um, if you haven't received the sales pitch yet, it's probably coming. Yeah, I, we we have not. I have not received the sales pitch. There could be somebody else in our company that <laughs> that is chatting with him. But like the hundred proof, like I say no, but maybe there's an opportunity for something really cool to do. I mean, like we we do like doing fun things. Like, right. There's awesome shit. Right. The one off where yeah, let's embrace the awesome shit. Um, and yeah, let's let's go for it. Stuff like that is really fun, especially because we get asked all the time for like single barrels and and stuff like that, which is cool, but it's not really who we are Mm -hmm. right now. It's what it's part of what we do, but who we are is really white rum. It's archaea. So 
if somebody is interested in embracing that in a slightly different way, I, I think there's something fun that can happen on that, especially if we're lined up next to all these other fresh cane juice rums, cachaças, AOC Agricoles. Exactly. To the, to the guys in Tahiti or Fiji or where like there's so much cool cane out there. There really I mean, is. Yeah. I think like the next the next 10 years when it comes to like fresh cane juice rums, I think we're going to see so much awesome shit. So um, <laughs> it's going to be a time. Yeah. Cool. Well, Kyle, uh, this has been really great. And uh, we always have a tradition at the end of our episodes. My co-host, John Gola, does a special rapid fire round of questions. We put 60 seconds on the clock and drill you with insanely tough scientific questions. So this will actually be perfect for you, given your chemistry <laughs> background. But um, I'll let John uh, give you the details on that if you are up for uh, participating. Let's let's bring it on, shall we? <laughs> yes. All right. Excellent. I love the enthusiasm. Let's do it. All right. I've got 60 seconds and go. All right. Neat or on the rocks? Neat. Column, pot, or blend? Oh, pot. Okay. I think I know the answer. Molasses or cane juice? Only fresh co. That's there right. Aged or unaged? Unaged. <laughs> also Dude, these are, these are easy on this yep. one. Uh, your personal favorite co-heirloom variety that's been distilled so far? Oh, I'm not supposed to say Lahi. <laughs> Censored. Do you ever introduce yourself as Kohana Kyle, speaking of alliteration? It, it is unfortunate how connected those two things are. I don't introduce myself that way, but I am introduced that way. <laughs> Do you have a favorite among the other Hawaiian islands? Maui, Kauai, or another one? Absolutely. My my partner lives on Maui, so Maui for sure. Okay. Nice. Kohana's mission is to isolate the variable, that being the co. Would you say what you do is closer to rum algebra, rum calculus, <laughs> or maybe rum trig? <laughs> it is. Uh, it, it's Right now, it's rum algebra. We'll get into the calculus eventually. <laughs> You're Excellent. advancing. I love it. Yes. <laughs> All right. Last one. This is for my Marvel fans out there. Have you considered ever using a light blue glass for one of your cube-shaped bottles for unaged rum and calling it the Tesseract? <laughs> I I don't think people could handle the power. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I, I'm just saying I would. That's an insta buy for me. So <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad Kyle uh, evidently uh, is a Marvel fan because it's 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 a recurring theme on this podcast that I've seen like two Marvel movies, so I never get the references. So oh, I'm no? glad that that because that's the first time I've ever seen the word tesseract in my life before. So I was totally <laughs> lost, but you seemed like uh, you knew exactly where he was going with that. I grew up on comic books, man. I, I was, I'm well aware. A man after my own heart. Well, thanks, Kyle, for hanging out with us. Um, anything that we didn't get to or that you want to, to add on at the end uh, for folks before we go? I just want people to know like, if they have questions or if they want to ever see what we're up to, don't hesitate to reach out. We've got a distillery with big glass windows to show everybody everything. When you get to visit Hawaii, you should come and say hi to us or any of the other Hawaiian distillers, and we will welcome you with open arms. I'm just grateful for the community. John, Will, grateful for you guys doing this work because it shortens the distance between awesome shit and <laughs> the humans who drink it. So I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for that. And to anybody who I offended with the agricole answer, uh, I'm out there and willing to talk about all kinds of things. Yeah. Ongoing dialogue is good. 
Um, especially when it's not in like a, a Facebook comment section. So, well, thanks again, Kyle. Really appreciate it. And um, yeah, at some point we're getting out there to Hawaii oh, yeah. and uh, we'll, we'll come hang out there with you. Please, please do. I cannot wait. All right. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining us for another episode of The Rumcast. If you want to learn more about Kohana, we're going to put up links to their website and stuff like that in the show notes. And as, as Kyle said, feel free to reach out to them with any questions you have or to learn more. If you have any questions for me or for John, uh, you can always reach out to us on social media. We are at The Rumcast on Facebook and Instagram. You can also send us an email at host at rumcast.com. That's H-O-S-T at rumcast.com. So if you have any ideas for future episodes, just questions you want us to dig into on a future episode, send us there. We love getting emails from y'all and um, are always happy to uh, answer however we can. And yeah, having said all that, we will be back together again soon for another episode and uh, can't wait to bring it to you. Thanks so much. 